a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 103 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business. The Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Schold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young media professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at scholdmediagroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D mediagroup.com. I know in the last couple episodes I've been pretty quiet about what's been going on, and part of that's because it's just been so busy that I've not been able to do so. But here's what's been going on. In Minnesota, the fall high school sports season is just about over, which means my first season as the director for Lakeville North streaming broadcasts is coming to a close. And in so many ways, it's just been an absolute breath of fresh air. It's my first time in my career, now 11 years in, not having a day-to-day boss telling me how to do things, when to do things, what things to do. And while I thought going into it that I would like that aspect of life, I didn't know how much I would like it. It's really been great. On the flip side, of course, if something goes wrong, there's nobody to pass the blame on to, but it's a trade-off I'm going to be willing to make every time. Even better, the viewership numbers for our streaming platform, which you can see at lnpanthers.live, if, if for whatever reason you want to check it out, has been growing faster than I ever could have imagined that it would. For the fall season alone, we've had over 12,000 unique devices watching with a single game high of over 2,600 viewers for the Lakeville North versus Lakeville South rivalry football game. Going into this, I had no idea what to expect. I thought it might take a full year of low numbers before really having any chance of growing to what we've been able to do already. And that has been also an awesome aspect of what's been going on. Going hand-in-hand with those numbers, sponsorship has been great. And while it hasn't been profitable enough to quit my part-time job... It's not been that far off, and with either organic growth or expanding to another school or two in the future, I think it could be a very promising venture for the long term in my sportscasting career since moving to Minnesota. And I know I've talked a lot about the struggle that can be part of this industry day in and day out, and while it's far from over, I can see the light at the end of the struggle tunnel For maybe the first time ever to where I can live a comfortable lifestyle and call the games in the market that I want. So now almost a year and a half after finally moving, that's where things currently stand at the moment. 
Anyway, that's enough about me. This week's guest is the first of two non-traditional guests for the show. This week, I'm happy to chat with Quint Kessenick of ESPN. He got into the business as a lacrosse analyst and has grown in his list of responsibilities to include, in addition to being an analyst, sideline reporter and play-by-play announcer. He brings a unique perspective of how to succeed across many different segments of the sportscasting business, and this is longer than I usually like to talk at the beginning of the podcast. So without further ado, Quint Kessenick, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, sure. No problem. And I just want to start with a little bit of your background, because the majority of the people that I talk to get into sportscasting because they fail at athletics or are not athletic enough to make a team. You are at, were at one time one of the best lacrosse players in the country for Johns Hopkins University and parlayed that into a broadcasting career. Was that what you always wanted to do, or was it something that you figured out along the way? I very much figured it out along the way. Uh, you know, My background, even before that, my dad was high school football coach, uh, a three-sport coach. I, I played four sports in high school, uh, football, soccer. I was a pretty good wrestler uh, in middle school and early in high school. and looked like that would be my path, but eventually I got better at lacrosse and then chose that in college. But, you know, after college, I, I worked for Citibank uh, in their HR department for a credit card company that they, they owned. And, and uh, on the side, I started broadcasting Johns Hopkins uh, lacrosse games on radio. That led to a little TV that TV led to uh, an appearance on ESPN. They liked my stuff. They kept bringing me back. And then gradually from, let's say, 1995 to the early 2000s, I just kept uh, asking for for more assignments and more tryouts in different sports. And uh, and each time, you know, treated as as a one-and-done type deal and kept getting called back to where I, uh, you know, I could do it full-time eventually. What was your actual major at Johns Hopkins that you ended up at Citibank. Oh, is that, was that in the field you were trying to get into or no. was that just uh, what you found? No. Uh, I was a social and behavioral science major. It's uh, basically Johns Hopkins form of uh, liberal arts study. And I took a lot of classes. I, I liked very few. Uh, Hopkins is, is an extremely intense academic environment where 90% of the students there want to go to med school or law school. And so, uh, they're, they're all extremely high achievers who are working a lot harder than I was. And getting into lacrosse broadcasting, I'm located in Minnesota in the Midwest where the game is starting to become popular. I actually did my first lacrosse broadcast this last spring, but it's not something that is universally followed like football or basketball is what about that sport uh, jumps out at you that an audience can latch on to? Well, I, I think that it combines a lot of elements from, from different sports, whether it's the field play of soccer, the, the hitting and, and intensity and, and uh, physical play of hockey, uh, the basketball patterns and, and, and half field sets. So it combines a, a lot of the elements of, uh, of well-known sports and, and that it's, uh, it's it's unique. It's you know America's oldest sport, uh, a sport from the, the Native Americans, so it's got good heritage there. And every player is different in lacrosse. You know, no one has 
there's there's no identity cookie cutter type identity. So you see styles of players and styles of teams vary, uh, and it's a fun. It's a team sport. Uh, it's a it's a running game. It's a skill game. Uh, and and I was lucky enough. I played uh, offense and goalie growing up, and then eventually switched to goalie full time in ninth grade. But uh, but it's a sport that I always loved, and it's fun to practice. You know, I played high school football, and practice can be rough. Uh, same with wrestling. I love the training of wrestling, but but it's uh, it takes a different type of mindset. Lacrosse practice typically is is one of the more enjoyable practices endeavors for young people. What makes a good lacrosse broadcast that maybe is different from what makes a good football or basketball broadcast? Well, as you said, because of our audience. You know, we have a hardcore uh, band group of, of viewers. We have people who are moder- moderately familiar with the sport. Maybe they have a son who picked up a stick two or three years ago, and he's a sophomore in high school. And then we have those viewers who stumble upon us who's never never seen the game before. So my biggest challenge is to cater my broadcast to all those levels of viewers. So at times being elementary and teaching, uh, explaining some rules, but at other times taking the game a little forward to a professional level of analysis in terms of strategy, individual play. So it's, it's, that's, that's my hardest assignment is who do I gear this broadcast to and how do I entertain that, that wide spectrum of, of viewers? How do you make the decision as to what moments you're going to, you know, be basic and try to simplify the game and teach the game to someone who doesn't know it and when to dive deep into the strategy? Does it depend on what network or platform you're on, or is it just different moments in the game? How do you decide when to do what analysis? You know, your last point about time of year and network platform, it's very important. And Anish Shroff, myself, Paul Carcaterra, our producers, we're aware that over the course of a season, maybe a regular season game in early March, on ESPNU, we know our numbers aren't going to be as significant, and we know that's a pretty hardcore group watching us. But as the tournament advances in May, and we're on the, you know, the the mothership on ESPN, let's say for a semifinal, we're going to get a bigger audience, we're going to get a less experienced audience, and we have to dial it back a bit. So, understanding that type of scenario, you know, who's likely to be watching this game? Is it on a network show? Is it on a, you know, you dot com or or, or, you know, the millions of different uh, outlets nowadays, you have to take that into account. Uh, but, but again, you, you always want to make the, the new viewer feel welcome, and, and, but you got to throw out some, some tidbits for, for the experienced fan or, or they won't keep coming back. So, you know, teaching the game on different levels, it's like teaching a, a, a basic math class while also doing uh, advanced calculus. How often do you use different sports terminology to try to illustrate what's going on to someone who's new. Because when I was doing it, I ended up doing probably more of that than I should have. How often do you use other terminology to describe your terminology to make that fit? Uh, originally, I was told to do that a lot. I think I've, I've scaled that back a bit, but you do have to pick your spots. You know, If there are similarities, I, I think you should point them out. And, and to make the game understandable for the viewers important. But at the same time, if you're constantly making comparisons to other sports, what does that say about your own sport? Uh, so, so again, that's just a feel thing. I, I think, 
as I've gotten older, I've done a little less of that than I used to, but, but it's still in some scenarios when we have crossover athletes, kids who are either, you know, great high school basketball players or soccer or football, and they do a skill that's similar to both sports. Um, it's worth pointing out, I think. What in your eyes makes a great, makes a great analyst for a broadcast? Uh, in any sport, I think, tell me something that I can't see, you know, uh, my job as an analyst is uh, is the why, okay? The play-by-play guy is going to give you the what. Logan scores a touchdown from 12 yards. My job as an analyst is the why. So was it a block? Was it a missed assignment? Was it a cut the running back made? Was it misdirection uh, with some motion and a shift? You know, the why is, is is your focus, and that can be a lot of different things. But from a role definition standpoint, play-by-play is the what. Uh, and the analysis, the analyst is the why. And how do you decide which of those whys to use? Is it based off of uh, what you're seeing? Is it based off of preparation or something you have talked about in a production meeting? How do you decide what to spotlight in a given broadcast? Well, that's just, that's your reflexes as an announcer. It's what you're seeing. Uh, it's you're seeing in live action with your eyes. And, and then it's likely uh, what, what you're seeing on the replay. And, there are those times where, where you think, wow, I think that goal was scored because uh, the defender misplayed it. And then you watch the replay again and you realize there was something else you may have missed the first time. Uh, that Then that's what makes it hard. You know, we're basically seeing the game in real time, announcing it in real time. It's not like we have a, a head start. There are some shows that have clickers that allow announcers to see the replay a little faster than it actually comes up on screen. A bunch of our football announcers have that, that toggle technology, which is very beneficial. But uh, – you know, you're, you're, you just—that's that's your game sense. That's your, that's that's your game sense uh, to find the why and then to correctly describe it for the viewer and and uh, the, some of the uh, nuances and subtleties of it. How difficult is it to build chemistry with multiple different play-by-play guys? Just because you do so many sports, so many different guys, but. Uh, the analyst is the star on TV, so you have to have that good chemistry. Is it easy for you to do that, or what do you do to make sure that you have that good flow and are able to click with every play-by-play guy you work with? Yeah, you know, it's the the, the play-by-play guys that I like have more, have more of a, a conversational tone to them, regardless of the sport. Uh, they're calling the game, but with a conversational tone. Too often, you know, announcers will just throw information at the screen stats, data, and information. I, I prefer a conversational tone, so I'm trying to establish that with them, whether it's day before the game as we're watching practice, whether we're out, out to dinner, and I'm just kind of encouraging them to ask me questions. Like, hey, here's what I'm seeing. Don't be afraid to ask me about, about this player or about this scheme. And and so then it has a more conversational tone. Uh, you know, I also think that communicating during commercials is really important. Okay. You look at a, a show, let's say of four quarters, uh, eight segments. It's really important to huddle up after each of those segments. When you go to, when you go to a commercial break uh, and look forward, Hey, in this next segment, I really want to talk about this goaltender and how his arc on the crease is, is higher than most. Uh, if, if, if that opportunity presents itself, team me up on that. Uh, or, or he's going to say, Hey, I want to talk about this midfielder. Are you good? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Ask me about ask me about his speed or, or whatever. So that communication in game during commercial breaks is essential. 
I've talked to a couple different analysts, not necessarily on this show, but it seems like there's two schools of thought. It's, I want to know everything you're going to ask me so I can be prepared and so I don't ever get caught without an answer, or I want to know nothing and I want all of my initial actions to be authentic and and not pre-rehearsed, so to speak. I know, obviously, you said just now that you like the former. What is your thought on the people who prefer the latter or that style of analysis? I'm I'm fine with both, but 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 there are times in a game I think if if Logan's got three goals and an assist, and we haven't really talked about him as much as as we should, I think it's important that we go there. But I'm I'm fine, and I I like I think it's uh, thrilling and stimulating to to for a play-by-play guy to ask me a question that, that I'm not really prepared for. Uh, and, and I do that in my role now as a, as a football field analyst reporter, you know, there are times in a game where I'll just, I'll ask Rod Gilmore, our analyst upstairs, a question to, you know, Rod, why are they playing this coverage? And, and we haven't discussed it at all. Or, you know, Rod, why is the quarterback struggling with this read? Uh, just, just to throw a question out that I'm seeing as if I were the viewer on the couch, wondering why we're, why something's happening. So the the reason that I wanted to have you on this show to begin with is because you are, A, a listener requested it, and you're kind of one of the preeminent voices of lacrosse on ESPN. But you also, as you just alluded to, do so much more. You uh, report for football. You do color analysts for wrestling and, I believe, horse racing, if I even read it correctly, and play-by-play for basketball. What have you had to do to learn each sport at a deep enough level to be able to confidently broadcast it? Or is it something, do you just do sports that you already have that with? No, no, it's, it's, I mean, you can add, I've done some soccer in the past, some, uh, the hockey frozen four. Now I've done six or seven years as a, as a reporter, the wrestling's approaching 20 years, uh, as, as a reporter and to wrestling championships. Uh, but, you know, basically my job is, is to watch sports. And, uh, sometimes, you know, I, I overwork myself and then I got to sit back and say, you know what, I'm getting paid this week to watch Stanford and Washington football tape, to listen to their press conferences, to go to practice at Stanford on Thursday, to meet with your coaches on Friday. I couldn't be happier. This is like what I dreamed of doing. My, my, my job is to cover sports. And so, uh, I, I, I want to outwork my competition, you know, the other announcers out there. Uh, I want to, I want to be fresh, but, but really well prepared. Uh, just, just the way I am, the way I was as an athlete. Uh, I'm going to cross all the T's, dot all the I's and keep hustling, uh, regardless of my role, regardless of the sport. Uh, that's just the way I'm wired. What is your preparation process? Where, when do you start and what information are you looking for? Well, it, it differs in sports. I mean, I'll take you through this week with with this uh, Washington and Stanford game Saturday night on on ESPN. Late, uh, you know, Sunday. I'll depends on where I'm flying home from Sunday morning. And sometimes we know our game. Sometimes we don't. Uh, this was a case where we were feeling pretty sure we were going to be going to this game. So I'll try to watch uh, some tape on the way home. Or, or look at some articles, uh, get something done on Sundays. And then Sunday, you know, obviously I'm pretty exhausted after some of the, the travel that they put me through. Uh, Monday, it's about film. Early in the week, I like to watch a lot of film now. You know, years ago, I used to read all the clips 
and I'd have a story on Logan, the backup right guard, and get to the game, and, well, Logan doesn't really play that much, so you're not going to tell that story. <laughs> so now it's a matter of, you know, watching two full games. TV versions are good because you can just steal information from prior announcers, and then I'll watch a lot of condensed games and highlights from earlier in the season where you start to see trends. So Monday and Tuesday generally are a film. Uh, just got off the phone for with our weekly production meeting where our crew will talk about different uh, television issues that w- that we're we're going to produce this week, pre-packaged, so to speak. Uh, as the week goes on, I'll, I'll watch a little less tape and, and start reading. The, a five-hour flight to uh, San Jose is, is great to catch up on all the, the clips, and that gives you insight to the personality and and uh, who are the people. You know, the, the, the you got to you got to draw the fans in at times by telling uh, humanizing stories. So so that's that's done later in the week, and then. You get an opportunity to watch practice, talk to players and coaches. That's access that fans don't have. That's gold. And and that's my, my mindset on Saturdays, too, when I get to site, is to just hustle, to say hi to the water boy, to talk to the assistant trainer, to talk to the GA, to talk to the positional coach. Uh, in a friendly way, you know, I'm not uh, uh, going to put them up on the, on the witness stand and ask them hard questions, but I'm just trying to develop a relationship and, and maybe ask them two or three questions. and, and uh, that's what I find is the best. So the film, the, the the reading and knowing the background of the players, and then on site, you know, being a hustler, being a good reporter, um, moving my feet from sideline to sideline and talking to as many people as I can. You're a unique case just because you've done all the different roles in a sports broadcast on the air. You've done play-by-play, you've been an analyst, and you've been reporter. How does your preparation differ for each role? Well, they, they, you you learn – like this summer, I did a couple of play-by-play games, and it just makes me a better analyst. Uh, you, you realize the windows of opportunity in your role, uh, but 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 I, you know, play-by-play most important is you know, got to know the names and the numbers. If you don't have them memorized, then you're not going to be free to talk about them and make a good call. Uh, analysts, you know, it's 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 watching tape, it's watching practice, it's going down to the field for warm-ups to see those subtleties, the nuances, the, the size of the players, the, the general speed. A lot of times what you see on tape is, is not the same thing you see in person. Uh, and and then, then just understanding the whole team. You know, the, the sports broadcasting is really a team. That's what I love about it. From the producer to the director to the camera folks to the people in the tape, we're, we're, we're a team. And if, and if you're out there flying solo as the Lone Ranger in your role, you're not going to have success. So... I, I, I need support of the team. I need to know where the team's going. I need to know how I best fit in on this team to, to utilize my skills, to contribute to the broadcast. Uh, and again, it's a shared thing. It's not the play-by-play. It's not his show. It's not the analyst's show. It's all of our show. It's all of our show. It's a big pie, and, and we're all hoping to bring some ingredients to the table. There's a lot of different ways for broadcasts to use sideline reporters. And it sounds like you're in one of the situations where you can kind of just chime in anytime you want as long as you're not stepping on someone else. What makes a really good sideline reporter, in your opinion? A good timing and then eyes and ears. Uh, seeing, seeing and commenting on things that the booth may not be aware of. Uh, you know, again, being a compliment to the analyst up top. So in any game I go in with Rod Gilmore, 
I, I know he's got, he wants to talk about the tight ends of Stanford. He wants to talk about the youth, uh, young secondary of Washington and a certain pass rusher. So I'm going to fill in the areas. I'm, I'm not going to do work as much that's redundant. I may start looking at Washington's O-line, talk about this left tackle, Trey Adams, or talk about Jacob Eason, their quarterback, as a scrambler. So just finding ways to compliment. You know, so often I see announcers who do redundant work, uh, the, the, the trio or, or, or the reporter to the, you know, I worked with Sean McDonough for a bunch of years covering college football and, and Mike Tirico covering college basketball. And both of those, those men are, are brilliant at what they do, but that their minds are so sharp. Every clip they read, every interview they, they, they hold that's in their mind. And if I was counting on uh, a story from a meeting that they were at or reading an article that they also read, uh, that's not getting on the show. So it, I learned with Sean that I had to do, when we went to coaches meetings, I had to like walk down the hall and go to the, go to the tight end, and the tight ends coach and talk to him for a while because I needed to gather information that Sean didn't have access to because everything he had access to, he could regurgitate. He's just an amazing memory. So, so that was a great learning experience. You know, avoid doing redundant work from those on your team. So, do you have communication with someone like Sean McDonough when you have that to say, "Hey, I have this bit. I think it might be good in this situation. Uh, cue me up at this point." Or again, does it happen organically? Well, uh, at the time, my that that was before my mic was live the whole game. Now it's organically. Now it's organically and. I'll get back to, and to talk back to my producer and say, uh, when Rod's done, if there's a window here, I, I, I wouldn't mind talking about you know that same direction. And sometimes I get to talk and sometimes I don't. That's the one thing in the role of reporter and or sideline analyst. Uh, you know, so much of your work you don't get to you don't get to talk. I mean, there was a play this year where I was pretty sure that a team was going to throw a a fade in the end zone. Uh, they just converted a fourth down going in at the 30. And I was like, you know, what? I've seen this on tape. They're going to take a shot here on first down. And it just wasn't time. And I was ready. And guess what? They threw a fade first down touchdown. I mean, I called the play, but didn't get, and so those moments happen because you're, you're not given the opportunity to talk freely. And so you just got to deal with the fact that many times, uh, your thoughts not going to get on air. Because I'm so used to, as an analyst for lacrosse, you know, you, you, you're generally uh, you, you don't you don't have those misses like you do when you're the, when you're the third man. What makes a great question for your halftime three questions with a coach? Well, you got to be direct. You got to ask a question. I try not to uh, start the question with information. I just ask a question. Uh, what happened? Uh, you know, instead of saying, well, Logan tripped and fumbled that punt and that caused a seven point swing in the game coach. What happened? Well, just, just get to it, you know, ask a question and, and try to be direct at pinpoint moments in the game that they, they can, uh, they can, uh, describe, uh, you know, they all want to go to their crutches. Well, you know, there's certain, you know, well, we just got to execute. Well, you know, sometimes you ask a good question, you get a bad answer. But the key is to keep asking good questions because occasionally you find gold. I feel like this is more of a recent phenomenon that hasn't always been the case. But with 
what Bill Belichick and Greg Popovich do with sideline reporter questions. I know you had the experience with Bo Pelini where he brushed you off and told you it was a stupid question in the middle of your your three-question yeah. segment. How do you deal with difficult coaches who don't give you the respect that you probably deserve uh, on the sideline? Well, you know, Mike, Mike Leach, well, I asked Mike Leach a question once, and, and he gave me a surly answer. You know, I've had Mark D'Antonio shrug me off, and he called me the next day to apologize. Bo Pelini, all you can do is ask the question. Uh, and, and, and as long as, as you don't put your opinion into it, because he may not, he may not agree with your opinion. Anytime you, you throw opinion out to Popovich, he's going to, he's going to tear it apart. You, you just got to ask a question. I mean, I had urban Meyer one time. I asked him, you know, coach, what, what, how did you describe the run defense? Uh, and he says, what, what, what's wrong with our run, you know, run defense. And then, and then I backed it up with, well, they've given up X amount of yards. This half. And then he looked at me, he goes, Oh, is that, is that so? He didn't know, but he was kind of playing with me, but you just got to ask a question, you know, what happened? Uh, how would you describe, characterize, you know, keep, keep them short. And you only can do, you do what you do. If, if they're not a willing conspirator, that's not on me, okay? If I ask a bad question, that's on me. But, but if they're not a willing conspirator to, to the interview, then there's really, you just got to suck it up and, and understand that they're, they're not in a good mood. Do you have to prepare yourself and kind of steel yourself up when you know you're dealing with a potentially prickly coach? Yeah, well, you just got to. You want to make sure you, you're going to ask them a, a tight question, uh, and, and then you can follow it up with something good if, he, if it gives you the opportunity. Uh, it's uh, it's a hard genre, uh, you know. It's it's not a. I have respect for people who do it well because it's not easy at all. Things can change quickly in the last couple minutes. Uh, generally, I, I find that the halftime interview or, or just the, the post game interview, the best thing you can capture is good information, you know, access and information. Um, so, so their answer, if their answer illuminates the viewers, that's a plus. But the other thing you're capturing also is, is, uh, is attitude. Uh, you're, you're capturing the personality of the coach at the moment, who, who may be frazzled, who may be upset, who may be uh, preoccupied, and you can see the stress that they're dealing with. So that's a plus in, in itself. So, you know, what, what information do we get out of them? But also what's their state of mind? What type of questions do you ask national champion wrestlers when they are walking off the mat? And what is the maybe strangest reaction you've gotten in that situation? That that may be harder than talking to coaches because those kids are uh, lit up on adrenaline like, like you wouldn't dream of. I mean, that's the moment of their life they've been waiting for and training for 20 years. And so kind of intruding on their, their victory party, uh, I try to tie something to the match and then I try to tie a question maybe to, to something that makes them tick as young men, whether it's a family, whether it's a coach, whether it's a teammate, whether it's their journey. Uh, but, but again, there are some who, who are terrific interviews, I've gotten just wonderful stuff from some, and there's others that, that fail, fail badly. Uh, I generally say, in, you know, but there's 10 matches. If I can get, five or six at the middle of the road, I know I'm going to get two really good ones and probably two that, that are horrendous. <laughs> and that's, it's just, it's, just, uh, it is what it is, you know? And, and I'm, I'm sure if I, if I ever won an NCAA wrestling championship, the last thing I probably want to do is, is have a mic uh, thrown in my face uh, post-match 
immediately while you're still just your heart beating out of their chest. I've always found it fascinating how in the chaos after a big game, especially in in a championship-type situation where the stand's empty, there's just people everywhere, that the sideline reporters are able to find anybody to talk to. How does that process work for you? Do you have a wrangler who's going around trying to find people for you, or do you just have to grab them and say, hey, let's talk? No, I, that's why I train. You know, that's why I do my, <laughs> my interval work and my weight training. I mean, I uh, think about, you know, the, 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 the dog piles that I was involved with at Clemson early on in Dabo Sweeney's career when, when they when they beat, uh, I think it was Auburn. It was really a turning point for that program way back when. And the camera guy couldn't get to coach, and I was with him. And luckily we had Skycam swoop in, and so it's a great shot. But, you know, it, I had a similar thing happen in Washington where I got sandwiched between some offensive linemen when they upset USC years back when Pete Carroll was USC head coach. Uh, I've had, I had a, I think an FCS playoff one game at Texas state when I was in this mob at the middle of the field and God, it smelled like beer and it was so hot because the kids, it's a hot day, but when you get hundreds of people packed in, it was just, it felt like it was 150 degrees. And uh, those are fun. They're, they're exciting. I, I have to be careful of, uh, just safety, you know, uh, elbows flying, people bumping into each other. If you're with your camera, the hard part is his cable. He can get there if it's a wireless easily, but if he's on a cable, just think about dragging a rope through that mess and how that's going to get uh, kicked up and tugged on and how difficult it is for camera folks. So we, we have a protocol that if, if, if the field is, is swarmed, we have a fallback position. You're not going to get to the coach immediately, but you've worked it out with, with his handlers that, hey, meet me at the near side 30-yard line after uh, after the chaos. But but I, I like to, you know, just hustle and get there right to the handshake so you're in the middle of the chaos. You kind of you gotta beat the students up to the spot. Have you ever seen somebody get injured or take a, an elbow to the nose that would prevent you from doing your job in a situation like that? No, no. Uh, you know, it's it's something that you, you just uh, it could happen. But no, we're, we're encouraged uh, if 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 in doubt to uh, bail out of those scenarios. But but if, but if I can position myself where I'm near the coach as the, as the clock hits zeros, uh, I'm going to be in a good position. Now, whether my camera can get me there or not is is the other case. You know, that's a different scenario. But we do have up cameras, end zone cameras sometimes sky cam that we can conduct that interview to had a situation, Florida state, Georgia tech game where Florida state's about to win the game. I'm on their sideline. Their field goal gets blocked and returned for a touchdown. And that, that, that great, uh, uh, day to live game when Georgia tech stunned them. Then I had to find Paul Johnson and I'm flanked. I'm on the wrong side of the field and all chaos is breaking loose. That was a tough one, uh, where the game swung from this team's going to win to two seconds later, the other team won, and then the field being swarmed. That was, that was fun. You don't often see analysts move into the play-by-play chair. It's kind of a completely different craft, and often you just see, especially former athletes who excelled, just get into their comfort zone and stay there. What made you decide you wanted to dive into play-by-play? Well, just a new challenge. Uh, Paul Carcaterra, who's, who's an analyst, and I had the opportunity to do a couple games together. 
and at first the thought was, well, we're going to share this. We're going to share the responsibilities and just, just talk across over this game. And, uh, it turned out that I kind of called the game, but more like calling it like an analyst, you know, a, a little less nuts and bolts, uh, a little more conversational between the two of us. Yes. At times taking from break and throwing to break, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of, of the announcer's job. But, you know, there's nothing other than having a, I don't have a play-by-play voice. I think otherwise I can, I can do the role. Uh, and so, so that was, it was uh, really, it was a challenge. And like without challenges, you don't improve. And I know that it's made me a better analyst because I realized the windows of opportunity. I realized how to support your play-by-play announcer. I realized when I need to shut up and let the play-by-play announcer dominate to make the signature call to, uh, to tell the story about a student athlete. It, it, it's just, it's made me much better analyst having, having, um, getting, you know, two or three or four opportunities a, a spring. What type of feedback do you get from ESPN saying, okay, you did a nice job, but next time we want you to do this better. Do you have that, or do you have to go get it on your own? Uh, yeah, you, you, you will get that, uh, especially if you ask for it, but but you will get it, and, and it's, it's usually pretty on point uh, with, hey, you know, I didn't like the way you set up this package. Hey, we came back from break. Just uh, X's and O's, and, and, and then usually say less. You know, you need to say Logan with the goal at 436 of the fourth quarter makes the score 86. Just, uh, just, just put an exclamation point on the goal without so much information and, and lay out, you know, talk less. So, so I, I've found myself in all roles trying to talk less but mean more, especially as an analyst, uh, you know, to pause in our big playoff run. The crowds are great. There's a tremendous emotion. Team scores a goal. Don't jump right in and start analyzing the goal. Let them let the moment be beautiful. Let the crowd go crazy. Let the mascots do their backflips. Let the players celebrate. Just pause and stay out of it for a second. Then when 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 they when they cue the replay, you've had some time to think about the goal. Your analysis is going to be better. Keep it short. Keep it short. So so saying less and meaning more is something that 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 I've tried to incorporate in all roles in all sports. The, the tendency to over-talk is, is uh, it's a problem in the industry. You mentioned that dipping your toes into play-by-play made you a better analyst. What about being an analyst first made the transition into play-by-play easier? Uh, I just think understanding important moments in a game, you know, just understanding game flow, tactics, uh, the way teams rotate personnel. So, you know, my call is sharp. Uh, trying to mention as many student-athletes as I can early in a game and then circling back later to our stars, that kind of thing. Uh, just just understanding the analyst has got this checked off his list. He's going to get there, so that's not my job. But but I, I, I do need to set up uh, this coach or, or you know, this, this personnel grouping, it, it more, more, I think more like uh workflow type type scenarios. What do your spotting boards look like? My boards for football are, are 
pretty big, and and like ninety percent of them I'll never use. Uh, they, they have uh, pictures of both coaching staffs. They have the two deeps. They have pronunciation guides. They have the referees' names. They have hospital information. They have uh, sports medicine staff information, and then they have starters. I got bios on all the starters uh, that that I'll start. You know, I'll do based on tape, based on articles based on practice, based on interviews. Then I have spaces for uh, our meetings with, with uh, offense coordinator, defensive coordinator, head coach. So they're pretty extensive. Uh, I keep them and refer back to them. They really come in handy. You know, let's say I'll go back and take a look at Washington from last year. And uh, there's, there's some things that carry over if your coaching staff remains the same. In lacrosse, my boards as an analyst are smaller, believe it or not. Uh, it's all the personnel. And then, it, and then it's my notes on what I'm seeing, and it's uh, you know a handful of stories. If if I if I don't have them to memory, it's a handful of of uh, personnel stories. Very, I used to used to be big on stats. I'm not big on stats anymore at all. One of the things that I like to finish up every one of these shows with is. Every broadcaster has what I like to call broadcaster horror stories, where Something went horribly wrong at some point in a broadcasting career that is fun to look back and laugh at now. It could be a horrible location. It could be a horrible technical malfunction, something really weird that just happened. What are a couple of your broadcast horror stories? Well, I mean, uh, luckily it was when the Internet was just getting started. Uh, I was at the Saratoga Racetrack. We were broadcasting... uh, two or three stakes races in the middle of August. Uh, there was a horse by the name of uh, Lost in the Fog, who was from uh, California, San, San Francisco, owned by Harry Alio. Uh, and Harry was uh, quite a character. I think he was in the real estate business in San Francisco. But he, was, but he, was, uh, he wasn't young. He was maybe upper 80s. Or he, uh, he had fought in World War II. He had played minor league baseball against Joe DiMaggio. And, uh, just a fascinating fascinating person and uh I, I wanted him to put in perspective what this horse has meant you know uh being where he had been to, to now enjoying this moment where this horse is worth like 10 million dollars and as we come back from commercial break they're getting ready to start the race but they're holding the race for my interview okay he didn't know that we're holding the race so he he almost didn't want to speak with me because he thought he'd missed the start of the race but he didn't understand, or I did not make it clear to him that they will not start the race until we tell them to start it. And that's dependent on my interview with you. So I start this interview with him and I asked a sloppy question and, and, and got a, a classic answer. And uh, that was, a, that was a, a great lesson for me. Uh, you can't be sloppy when you ask, ask questions. And uh, when dealing with people who don't quite understand uh, – the parameters, I should say. He was just worried. He wanted to get done with it, and and I should have I should have uh, communicated with him that they were not going to start the race until our interview was was done, and he wouldn't miss the start. You know, we haven't touched on your coverage of horse racing. Did you have a good idea of the ins and outs of horse racing leading into your your broadcasting career there? Or was that something well, you had to learn? No, there was uh, in college during the summer. I would go up to 
Saratoga, New York and paint houses. Uh, a friend of mine lives up there. And, and one day it started raining and I noticed everyone walking up the street. I'm like, well, where are they going? They're like, oh, they're going to the racetrack. And so because it was raining, I couldn't paint. So I followed them up. The next thing you know, I'm in Saratoga race course, 1988, I think. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And so uh, I went up there every summer and eventually uh, was able to go up there and write for a, the Saratoga Special, which is a, a small newspaper that covers the meet for 45 or 30 days. Back then it was I think, 40 days. And I was writing two articles a day. I was waking up at 5.30 and interviewing trainers and jockeys and owners and writing features about horses. Uh, all the while, I was doing lacrosse on the weekend. So that was like I was living up there for the summer. Uh, I was single and, and uh, really uh, enjoying myself. And then I brought a copy of that to a lacrosse game that summer. And the producer goes, oh, you know, I, I produced the breakfast show at, at uh, Kentucky Derby. We're actually looking for a reporter. I'm like, well, here, here's some of what I've written this morning. This is what I do. You've seen me on TV. And, uh, and that's how I got on, on that breakfast show for the Derby for four or five years uh, when ESPN was, was in that business. And, and, and that, was, uh, that was really fun, amazing. And, and uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a pseudo horse racing fan, it was, it was an incredible, uh, incredible couple of years. Smarty Jones and Giacomo. Um, and, and uh, you know, to, to be in, in, that, uh, in that scene for that, that uh, period of time. How does writing help you? become a better broadcaster. You mentioned you wrote for uh, some horse racing stuff. You write for Inside Lacrosse. How does having that writing background help you as a broadcaster? Well, I, I think the ability to boil things down, you know, I have a lot of ideas about this, let's say the Stanford-Washington game. And, and it could be a lacrosse game. It could be John Hopkins against Maryland. But, you, you, you know, what's the lead? What, and, and, and what's most important? It's it's critical that you don't bury that in, in your commentary. It's critical that you lead with that, whether it be TV or an article. And, th- and then you, you base it off of that. So prioritizing information. Uh, and, and then, you know, speaking clearly, speaking statement first analysis, uh, it, it really helps. I mean, if I have to write an article, a preview of a lacrosse game, the work it takes to write that article I'll tell you what, I am very prepared to take the air that week if I, if I had to write, let's say, a, a, a three-page, you know, writing the report is a lot harder than it is to just to uh, go announce a game from a preparation standpoint. You know your material. Who are your favorite broadcasters to either watch or listen to on an off day? Ooh, on an off day. Uh, you know, I... I I don't, you know, I don't watch much NFL. Uh, I, I just, cause I watch so much football during the week that the last thing I want to do on Sundays is watch a lot of NFL. Uh, I, there are people in the industry that when I'm watching a game, like let's say this week I had to watch Washington, USC. I'm right now I'm watching, watching Washington, Hawaii. Like there's certain announcers that, that I'll, I'll be like, Oh good. I'm glad, I'm glad they did the game last week. Cause I'll get some good information. And then there's others that I'm like, darn, I'm not going to get anything good this week. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to give you names. But I will tell you, like, in doing football, Chris Spielman was a guy, we remained friends. Uh, he was really helpful. Matt Millen, I did a year with Matt. We watched tons of tape every week on Fridays. He taught me a, a great deal about football, and, and I'm uh, he, he and we remained friends. Uh, 
Urban Meyer for that one year he was in TV. He was he was really helpful. Really kind of taught me about the big picture. You know what the coach's responsibility is in running this organization. Uh, and and so I just like to take a little from people I've worked with along the way, regardless of the sport. But but uh, you know take the best of a Sean McDonough, his ability to tell a story, or Mike Tirico to seamlessly tell a story during a play by play. That that is such an art, and those guys uh, those guys do that well. So I I don't think I have favorites. I have ones that I watch on TV and I prefer, but but the ones that I've worked with over the course of a season, uh, th- those have been the most beneficial, and those are people that that I have a, a real affinity for. If someone wanted to reach out to you, uh, how would you prefer that they do that? Twitter's good. Uh, Q Kesnick at uh, what is it? Q Kesnick at Twitter dot com. No, uh, my email is, is uh, Quint at InsideLacrosse.com. That's a Inside Lacrosse website and a magazine that I do some work for. That's a good one. Quint at InsideLacrosse.com. All right. Well, that's about all I got for you today. Once again, we are chatting with Quint Kesnick of ESPN. And Quint, thanks so much for coming on the Say the Damn Score podcast. Thank you. Uh, great questions. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps me make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the pod. And as always... I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.